0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 361 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, in another instalment of Location and the Writer, Babs Horton takes us to Tredegar, a small town in the Welsh Valleys ravaged by coal and politics. Brian Clegg rehaunts the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge where the ghosts of modern physics collect and Tamar Yellen explains the influence of the moorland landscape of Bronte country on her life and work. First, here's Babs Horton on Tradiga. It was a town of lopsided old houses that stretched
1: in terraces up the steep hills towards the restless skies. Inkerman, Balaclava, Sebastopol and Iron Row, where three-legged dogs ran amok, and a madwoman swallowed live fish by the bucketful. This was the opening of my first novel, A Jarful of Angels. The place was Tredegar, a town in the South Wales mining valley that left an indelible print on my heart and on my writing. I left Wales for London when I was three, but every year I returned to Tredegar for my holidays, and was always delighted to find it almost as I had left it. The rows of iron workers' cottages where my grandparents lived were already in a state of decay and today would be classed as slums, but to me it was a wondrous place where I learned that imagination was a better currency than money. The kitchen was rarely empty. The solitary tap, the only source of water in the house, dripped monotonously into an enamel bowl. The fire was always lit and the cattle danced continuously on the open fire. Early risers made tea before they went off to work down the pit or coming in at dawn made a brew to damp down the coal dust before a well-earned sleep. On the mantelpiece the clock that once was pawned ticked lackadaisically. In the corner near the bread bin the bake-like wireless brought the news and tunes from other times. On rainy days I sat in front of it sullenly and listened to a woman with a voice like the Queen. I will sitting comfortably, then we'll begin. When she sang in a high-pitched strangle of a voice, I covered my ears. I couldn't wait for it to be over. A steady stream of visitors passed through the kitchen. Some more welcome than others. The priest chasing up confession and mass dodgers. The insurance agent, the rent man, who my grandfather said was so tight his arse squeaked when he walked. The neighbouring women who came in to read the tea leaves, to laugh, to sob, to borrow a fag or to ask for the loan of a few bob to see them through the week. There were other visitors too. Barney the bulldog who regularly broke his chains and escaped from a distant farm who turned up at the door, hoping for a bone or biscuit. Goats came gallivanting by for a nosy wonder and were given a bowl of peelings then shooed away because they once let the lace off my grandmother's best petticoat that was drying on the washing line. On washing days, the big tin tub was taken down from its rusty nail. Buckets boiled on the range and then the air was awash with bubbles and the smell of sunlight soap and wreck blue. We played hide and seek between the lines of billowing washing that were strung across the bailey until we were chased away by broom-wielding matriarchs with a bell on every tooth. The gloomy back parlour was only used for funerals and weddings and once by a burglar who ate the Easter eggs and stole a bottle of cider that had been replaced with castor oil. The parlour reeked of mothballs, polish and damp. There were sepia photographs of dead people who looked down on you from on high. There was a high backed settle that creaked under the weight of ghosts who sat there waiting in the dark to pounce. There were gaslights and candles that conjured up shadows that chased you up the wooden hill to bed. I slept in a giant bed under a patchwork quilt made from the snippets of people's clothes plaid shirts, rumpers, wartime frocks and faded nightdresses. People were born in this bed and died there too. Above my head a giant crucifix hung on a frayed cord and I was terrified it would fall on me while I slept. Although I liked to believe that if this happened I would be dispatched straight to heaven. That seemed only fair and probably my only chance of making it there. Holy pictures adorned every wall. Poe-faced saints and bleeding martyrs kept watch while I slept. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, bless the bed that I lie on, and if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul will take. Such were the cheery mantras we chanted before sleep. On windy nights the curtain shivered in the draughts, and the candle would splutter and die. There in the darkness I would hear the squeak of mice beneath the floorboards, and bats beyond the window. The dogs would howl like bilio, the buckets and tin bars clatter and the owl who lived in the chapel graveyard would call long and low. Sometimes I heard the tap-tapping of a walking stick going along the lane we called the gully and convinced it was Blind Pew from Treasure Island I'd cross myself and dive under the covers for safety. As well as my family there were other people who shared our house. There was a bogeyman who lived under the stairs among the brooms and mops and mouldy wellingtons. The ghost of a boy who was killed in the pit, who stalked the parlour after midnight. And another who moaned for her lost love in the downstairs bedroom. Underneath the bed was a giant piss pot that was haunted. If you sat on it, a hand would come up from the depths and pull you down into the flames of hell. The alternative was a walk through the parlour, the kitchen and across the bailey to the outside lavatory, which was full of lurking spiders. Once my cousin slept over and we sneaked a flagon of dandelion burdock pop up to bed and drank the lot. Desperate to pee and braver now I had company, I decided to face my fears and drag the pot out from under the bed. Poised in the darkness and unaware that my cousin had put a big spoonful of Andrew's liver salts in the bottom, I peed. There was a small explosion beneath me, a tremendous whooshing noise, and my screams woke the households on either side of us. My grandfather came running up the stairs brandishing the poker. In my panic, I knocked the statue of St Francis of Assisi off his perch above the tall boy, and he lost his nose, two fingers and a squirrel. Our days were full and the town and the mountains provided us with entertainment. When the sun shone we swam in forbidden icy rivers and ponds. We flew down shale tips on tin trays and pieces of cardboard, built dens from corrugated iron where we cooked sausages filched from home and ate slippery peach slices straight from the tin. We persuaded the big kids to give us bareback rides on the mountain ponies. We played knock-up ginger, knocking on doors and running away. We bought fireworks, mainly bangers from a shopkeeper who never asked our age. We put them under upturned tin buckets for maximum noise, listened with delight to the screams from inside the houses. Sometimes our victims got their own back by lying low, waiting for us to pass, then tipping a bucket of water over our suspecting heads. There was a soundtrack to our days. The town clock clattered out the hours and warned us of mealtimes. The sound of colliers whistling on the way to the pit, their boots scoring sparks on the pavements, the chorus of agitated sheep, the crowing of a malevolent cockerel who liked the taste of young flesh and terrorised us, the call of the milkman on his horse and cart, the rag and bone man hollering, the bell of the battered ice cream van as it laboured up the hills... Our shouts of glee as we chased behind it. The raucous singing of a drunk winding their way home from one of the many pubs or clubs. The punch, the greyhound, the mechanics. At night, as darkness drifted up the valley like smoke, we stood beneath a lone lamppost outside the old bakehouse. In the ballroom of its light, we told tall stories of our bravado. The apples we'd scrumped, the lies we'd got away with. And then the women would begin to call us in, their voices rising and falling, echoing over the hillside. The house is long gone, and most of the people. The pits are closed, the town ravaged by the miners' strike and years of austerity. Fast food outlets, tanning shops, nail parlours and charity shops have replaced Gladys's gown shop and the Penny Bazaar. The tall town clock still calls out the hours, and the chorus of sheep survive. The medical aid building is still there, but the house where our hero and Iron Bevan was born no longer exists. Occasionally I dream of the house again. I walk through the rooms, marvelling that the clock that once was pawn still ticks, the cattle dances on the hob, and the parlour ghosts await my passing. I climb up the creaking stairs, calling
0: out excitedly
1: that I am home.
0: That was Babs Horton. Next, here's Brian Clegg on the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge.
2: I have a passion for good American food. You only have to mention ribs or barbecue sauce and I'm there. So when last year I was invited to give a talk in Cambridge, I found myself eating in a place called Smokeworks in Free School Lane. After the excellent meal, I wandered towards my venue along the narrow street I found myself suddenly submerged in memories, because this is the location of the Cavendish Laboratory. When I studied physics, the Cavendish was still in use for some physics teaching, and my future in science writing was shaped by attending lectures in that place. But it was more than just a building for learning. The Cavendish provided unique ties to the history of physics. Now, it's a little sad. Search for the Cavendish Laboratory on Google Maps and you will be sent to what in my day was known as the New Cavendish, a collection of buildings from the 1970s and later, out to the west of the city. It's a great facility, but it's yet to develop much of a soul. Meanwhile, the old Cavendish has become something of a ghost. Both the original 1874 building and the striking 1933 Mond building with its Eric Gill crocodile decoration are still partly used by university departments, but there's no physics here anymore. The buildings apart are part of the cramped new museum site, containing a mix of structures erected mostly in the late 19th century, which has been slated for some time for redevelopment. There have been pleased to keep at least part of the Cavendish as a centre for the public engagement of science, something I passionately hope can come true, but whether or not it will happen is unsure. Standing in Free School Lane, replete with ribs and buttermilk fried chicken, I was able to see the Cavendish in a very different light to those undergraduate days, when I'd always been rushing from location to location as I didn't ride a bike, making it essential to develop an unrelentingly fast walking style to keep up with my peers. Back then, I did not have the knowledge of the history of science that now makes this building such a delight for me nor was I aware of its connection with the great Scottish physicist James Clerk Maxwell, not to mention the legal tussle that emerged as a result of the narrowness of that lane, which feels quite claustrophobic. When the Cavendish was built, there were hardly any university science laboratories in the UK, with most experimental work done in private labs. The Chancellor of Cambridge University, William Cavendish, 7th Duke of Devonshire, came up with a princely sum of £6,300 for the building, on the proviso that the colleges funded a professorship in experimental physics. Not only was Maxwell the first Cavendish professor, but he had a hand in every aspect of designing this purpose-built structure. The site that Maxwell was landed with was not ideal. Once the location of the Cambridge Botanic Gardens, the new museum site, was already home to other natural sciences. But the remaining space was cramped, and the Cavendish frankly looms up across the narrow lane far too close to the wall of Corpus Christi College. The college attempted to sue the university for a loss of ancient lights. They failed, but I could understand their point of view. Maxwell didn't just note the need for lecture theatres and laboratories – His requirements ran to fine details. He specified, for example, that ceiling joists should protrude through the plaster, so that supports for equipment could be attached to them. In his specifications, his sense of humour sometimes crept in. He noted at one point there should be a gas engine, if we can get it, to drive apparatus. If not, the university boat crew, in good training in four relays of two or two of four, according to the nature of the experiment." Ironically, though, for the poor denizens of Corpus Christi, the most obvious ghost from Maxwell's specification to the casual onlooker concerns a way to get better light into the labs. Walk down Free School Lane and look up at the windows of the upper floors, and you might think that the architect had made an error in his plans. Many of the windows have deep stone shelves below them, like a row of solid Victorian mantelpieces – These were to house heliostats, clockwork-mirrored devices that track the sun through the sky, sending a consistent supply of bright light into the laboratories. Something else I never noticed in that frantic rush from lecture to lab to lecture was the inscription over the main entrance, Magna Opera, Domini Exquisitar, in Omnes voluntates Eos. The works of the Lord are great, sought out by all them that have pleasure therein. Psalm 111 verse 2. Yet those words underline why this place is so important to me as a writer. I write science books but not textbooks. Science books for ordinary people in which I try to communicate the joy of scientific discovery. I genuinely take pleasure therein and want others to as well. I specialise in writing about the essentials of physics those wondrous discoveries that have led us to an understanding of the structure of the atom, the development of thermodynamics that tells us about entropy and the arrow of time, the fascinating weirdness of quantum theory, and the elegant transformation of space and time into an intertwined whole in relativity. All these have been influenced from this building. All these help to make this a special place for me. It's not just one of the buildings in which I learned my physics. Entering that location provided the same feeling of continuity of practice that comes from entering a church that has housed worship for hundreds of years. In the church, it's easy to imagine the mental focus, the concentration of worship and supplication in time of need. In the Cavendish, J.J. Thompson discovered the electron. The atomic nucleus was explored, leading to James Chadwick's discovery of the neutron. The structure of DNA was revealed by Francis Crick and James Watson, and Paul Dirac took quantum physics to a whole new level. It might seem odd to some who consider science the antithesis of the spiritual, but for me that quote from a psalm is very apt. I'm struggling here against a bias that goes back quite a way. In his poem Lamia, written in 1819, for example. John Keats complained of the work of another great Cambridge physicist, Isaac Newton. Keats wrote, There was an awful rainbow once in heaven. We know of her woof, her texture. She is given in the dull catalogue of common things. Philosophy will clip an angel's wings, conquer all mysteries by rule and line, emptied the haunted air and gnomed mine, and weave a rainbow, as it erewhile made the tender person glamour melt into a shade. Keats suggested that by explaining the rainbow, unweaving it, Newton was taking away its mystery and beauty. Yes, as far as I was concerned, what the Cavendish meant to me was not taking anything away from nature, but expanding its beauty. It made it possible not just to feel awe and wonder at the delight of a natural phenomenon like a rainbow, but to appreciate the fascinating physical process that lay behind the arc of colour in the sky. In a similar way, the discovery of electrons and neutrons, the uncovering of the wonders of quantum physics, and the revelation of the now iconic structure of DNA in that place, did nothing to take away from the wonders of the universe. Instead, the work of the Cavendish was the essence of bringing that Psalm 111 pleasure therein. By the end of my time in Cambridge, I had realised I did not have what it took to be a physicist. But this place gave me the love of the subject that fed into my writing. For me, at least, the Cavendish is the spiritual home of physics in the UK, and remains so to this day. That was
0: Brian Clegg. Next, here's Tamar Yellen on Bronte Country.
3: I can't remember when I first learned about the Brontes. They seem to have been always in my life, like the Judaism I grew up with, part of the landscape of my mind and imagination. Living in Leeds, we were able to access Bronte country fairly readily. It was one of the go-to places whenever family from abroad came to visit. And one of my earliest memories is of leaping up the side of the Bronte waterfall, hand in hand with my daredevil father. In early adolescence, the Moors became central to my dreams of liberation and escape. A vast, trackless waste, infinite and endless, where I could roam at will and be joyously and uninhibitedly myself. Sylvia Plath wrote that they were the only inland place she had been, where she didn't miss the sea, and there is something oceanic in those billowy hills, stretching off to an unbroken horizon, wave upon wave. To a certain temperament, it is the kind of environment that sets the soul free. For Emily Bronte, the Moors were heaven, preferable to any unearthly heaven the religion of her clergyman father might offer. For this poet of the night and the stars, of spiritual flight through the universe, the Moors offered an earthly reflection of that unfettered immensity. She wrote at them with both the naturalist's eye for detail and a visionary's sense of space The sun has set and the long grass now waves drearily in the evening wind and the wild bird has flown from that old grey stone in some warm nook a couch to find In all the lonely landscape round I see no sight and hear no sound except the wind that far away comes sighing o'er the heathy sea The Moors breathe through every page of Wuthering Heights, which Charlotte Bronte described as Moorish and wild and knotty as a root of heath. But it was Emily's poetry that won and influenced me even more than her only novel. Stuck in suburban North Leeds, I longed for the Moors as ardently as, I imagined, Emily had when sent away to school as a teenager It was a culturally inconvenient desire for the daughter of Zionists, who every year threatened to exile me to the far end of the Mediterranean. Not that I didn't love Israel, the land of my father's birth, but I loved England more. England, however, didn't necessarily love me back. I didn't belong here, or so my Jewish heritage taught me over and over again. Sitting above Top Withens, supposed site of Wuthering Heights, Gazing at the view that opened up 20 and 30 miles across the Yorkshire countryside, I exclaimed to my mother, Isn't it beautiful? To which she replied in Hebrew, Avalze lo lanu, but it isn't ours. Her words stabbed me through the heart, but I didn't heed them. At the age of 21, having completed my studies in Biblical and Modern Hebrew at Oxford, I moved to a village a mile away from Haworth, and have lived here now for over 30 years I've got to know the moors in all seasons and all weathers yes the wind does blow here six days out of seven and yes I have heard it wuther though I'm sure it never wuthered quite so plentifully in Emily's day as it does now along a slack telephone cable when I look out of my bathroom window I can see the Pennine rain squalls sheeting down the Sladen Valley the prevailing westerly winds carry them from Lancashire and at night my soul leaps when I see the moon Sailing above the moor top with its train of stars Emily's lines then come indelibly to mind There shines the moon at noon of night Vision of glory, dream of light Holiest heaven, undimmed and pure Looking down on the lonely moor And lonelier still beneath her ray That drear moor stretches far away Till it seems strange that aught can lie beyond its zone of silver sky. As I write, the heather is coming into bloom, stippled with tiny buds of amethyst, smelling of honey. I know the vegetation now. I know the birds—lapwing, skylark, curlew. I know the names of the rocks and landmarks: Pomdon Kirk, Ladder Crow Hill, Alcomden Stones, and the names of the many farms that dotted the landscape in Emily's day and which have now vanished. Duke Top, Smooker Hall, Virginia. I have waded through snow so deep you could well believe in Lockwood sinking up to the neck in it, a predicament which only those who have experienced it can appreciate. Early on summer mornings I have walked up onto the tops to find myself in a rarefied zone above a valley full of thick cloud under a clear blue sky in bright sunshine treading the very fields of heaven one has the impression of something not only infinite but eternal and unchanging and certainly this was what the moors represented for emily brontë the moors do change however and are more limited in extent than i imagined as a child just a fragment saved from encroaching civilization in the brontë's day dairy cattle and not sheep were the prevailing livestock there were hay meadows subsistence crops of oats and, as already indicated, a generous scattering of inhabited farms engaged in handloom weaving. The most recent alteration has been the erection of giant wind turbines, which can now be seen from nearly every vantage point, an army of white crucifixions marching over the hills from Calderdale. Breaking the stillness of the landscape and so drawing the eye, they dominate the horizon and transform a wild space into a semi-industrial one, for me, they have caged forever the free roving spirit of the Moors. While accepting their necessity, I cannot help the fact that they break my heart. Solitude, space, liberty are still to be found here, however. These are not merely outdated romantic notions, as the thousands of visitors who come from all over the world to visit the Bronte Parsonage Museum and tramp the Moors might attest. Certainly during the recent pandemic restrictions, locals came in desperate search of them, with the unfortunate result that the Bronte Waterfall was more like Bournemouth Beach. But even at these times, I have strayed out, morning or evening, to find myself utterly alone, followed the precipitous clough to Pondonkirk, that great crag sticking out of the valley like the head of Ozymandias or taken an unaccustomed path to the little-visited Alcomden stones, once thought to be druidical in origin, and where I have no doubt the young Brontes once played out their imaginary worlds. I have now lived here for more years than Emily Bronte was alive. I wouldn't say I am a local, in native parlance I am still an off but I have been here a good deal longer than many of the current residents. It took decades for me to feel I belonged, but this is now, unequivocally, home. Are thirty-odd years enough? No, and nor would forty be, nor fifty. Every sortie onto the moors brings pleasures as fresh as if I had felt them for the first time. I never want to leave. I never want to die and have to leave. With Emily Bronte I sing... We would not leave our native home for any world beyond the tomb. And with Emily Bronte I sing, Few hearts to mortals given on earth so wildly pine, Yet none would ask a heaven more like this earth than thine.
0: That was Tamar Yellen. You can find out more about Babs Horton, Brian Clegg and Tamar Yellen on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 361, which was recorded and produced by Yasser Amir. Coming up in episode 362, Ben Musgrave speaks with Anne Morgan about cross-cultural writing, Zoom drama and trusting yourself. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.